Mark chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. What's the problem for the Nazarenes with Jesus? Why are they so resistant? So resistant that they limit what he can do on God's behalf in their midst. There's something about Jesus' origins, about his social class, about his education, about his, where he comes from, his roots, that cause the people in Nazareth to not be able to appreciate what's happening in the life of Jesus. And so we're going to look at these obstacles for them and then ask ourselves, do we make similar mistakes with Jesus? So three, three obstacles that the people in Nazareth face. The first is this. The first obstacle is Jesus' social status. His social status was a problem for them. And so they refused Jesus for his social status. Did you catch those two questions that they asked? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? They asked. Now, for the inhabitants of Nazareth, I'm going to deal with the first question first, the carpenter. There would have been no stigma attached to being a carpenter. That's not a problem for the Jewish people in Jesus' day. But they are confused as to how someone who by trade is a carpenter has acquired the kind of wisdom and power Jesus has acquired. That seems strange to them. But I think Mark includes this comment because the carpenter question would be as powerful for Mark's Roman audience as the next question would have been for Jesus' Jewish audience. Roman society saw manual labor as demeaning. In fact, to be an educated person, you had to be part of what was called the leisure class. In fact, uh, the commentator Ben Witherington III reminds us that a Roman writer by the name of Celsus, in his polemic against Christianity, he's one of the early detractors who believe Christianity was not something people should follow. He sneered that this religion was founded by a carpenter. For the Romans in Mark's audience, Jesus' profession would have been a problem. And the second question that's asked, this one hits the Jewish people more. Isn't this Mary's son? That's a strange way to say it. In Judaism, the question should have been, isn't this Joseph's son? Remember, it's not the disciples saying this. It's not some later, this is the people of Nazareth saying this. Now, Joseph might have likely been dead. He certainly never shows up in the story. But even if he was, that would be against custom in Israel to identify a son by his mother's name. And so what's at stake in that question? It is most likely a questioning of Jesus' heritage, of his parentage. So here, remember, Jesus, we're told in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and Mark doesn't bring it in except here that Jesus was conceived prior to his parents' marriage. And in the story, of course, we're told that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But even Joseph isn't quite buying that, right? He needs the angel Gabriel to assure him that this is the truth. Because even Joseph believes Mary has cheated on him. 
And so the fact that the people in Nazareth ask, isn't this Mary's son, may be a covert way of saying, isn't this guy an illegitimate child? In the end, Jesus' town folk, townsfolk may have been questioning his ministry because of his lack of cultural pedigree. See, one of the things that Jesus teaches us as a people is that when God does something amazing, he often does not choose the ritzy and the powerful. Oftentimes, Jesus and God did the most amazing things with the poorest and the humblest of people. Now, we know Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but the people in his town didn't know that. As far as they knew, Mary and Joseph started this whole thing in sin. And so he's Mary's son. Who knows who the father is? Good old Joseph took him in. He was a carpenter, a nobody. We should be nervous if we size up a person by how they look to us. And we determine what God's doing in them based on those external appearances. They did that with Jesus. We should be careful not to do it ourselves. So Jesus was refused for his social status. These folks could not encounter Jesus as he was. They couldn't even appreciate what God was doing in him. They insisted on judging him based on their evaluation of his pedigree. And similar rejections of Jesus based on his culture and the time in which he lived and so on persist today. But the issue before us is not when did Jesus live. That's not even a fair question for Mark. It's not what was Jesus' occupation or what was his parentage. The question who is Jesus and Mark depends on other things. Those are irrelevant questions, but for the people in Nazareth, they were the only things that mattered. And some today make the same mistake. So the first, Jesus was refused for his social status. Second, he was refused for his educational background. You notice what they say there? Where, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him, that he even does miracles? Here's a quotation from Ben Witherington III. The reaction to Jesus' preaching assumes that Jesus couldn't possibly know more than the other locals about the scriptures, since he received the same sort of synagogue training they did. So here is Jesus, right? They grew up with him. These are his peers. They went to, to yeshiva with him. They went to Hebrew school with him. They were raised in the same town. They had the same instructors. They had the same rabbis. How could he be any better than us? He comes from the same place we do. It's hard to account for those kinds of people. The people in Nazareth had no precedent for a truly new thing, and neither do we. Do we think a genius comes in dressed dirty or smelly? A genius comes in working at a gas station? Do we believe that? Do we treat everybody as though that could possibly be the case? I think that's one of the things Jesus tells us, is that when God does something miraculously new, it doesn't always come from the source we think it should. Do we listen? But even worse, Jesus himself has been impossible to quantify. And people today still question the usefulness of Jesus' teachings because his pedigree is so questionable. Really, a Jewish guy trained by Jewish rabbis? Really? The whole world should submit to him? And the people in Jesus' own town, despite everything he had done, he was doing miracles. He was cleansing people who were unclean. He was restoring people to full health. He was casting out demons. He had even raised the dead, though they may not have known about that one. And yet they still could not see God right in front of them because they could not trace the history of his ideas. 
and his power. He was refused for his social status. He was refused for his educational background. And he's finally refused for their familiarity with him. They just knew him too well. You catch that? In the Isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now we've talked about in sermons in the past in this series some of the reasons God decided to be born as a human baby raised by a human mother, why he decided to mature through every stage of human development, why that was important. But that decision to become incarnate in that way also caused Jesus horrible problems in his hometown. You see, because when we have a history with a person, we have a hard time believing that there's anything that special about them. Because we know them. I mean, they're special, like we're all special. Familiarity breeds contempt. There's an old Aesop's fable called The Fox and the Lion, where that comes from, to the best of my study. Fox and the Lion. When first the fox saw the lion, he was terribly frightened and ran away and hid himself in the wood. Next time, however, he came near the king of beasts. He stopped at a safe distance and watched him pass by. The third time they came near one another, the fox went straight up to the lion and passed the time of day with him, asking him how his family were and when he should have the pleasure of seeing him again. Then turning his tail, he parted from the lion without much ceremony. And then the writer or translator of Aesop's fable says, familiarity breeds contempt. This was the problem for the people in Nazareth with Jesus. And it, I, I, I think that we in the West, it's the problem for us with Jesus. They just knew him too well. They had lived too long with him to think that there was anything exceptional about him. And I think that has come to be the West too. I think we've lived so long with the gospel. We've known Jesus and these stories for such a long time. I mean, 2,000 years is a long time. That they've become familiar. And through familiarity, contempt has been bred. And now we've come to think that we could have gotten what we got from Jesus in some other way. But you see, now we have what he's delivered to us, and now we can just dispense with him. And so the people in Nazareth, I don't know, were they touched by Jesus? Were they changed by him? Possibly they were. But they had grown up with him. And over time, they had just decided that there was nothing too special about him. How are we to evaluate Jesus? How are we to evaluate him? I mean, if we're not to ask the question, where is he from? If we're not to ask the question, who taught him? What's his educational history? If we're not to ask the question, what was his birth like? Were his parents good, godly people, or were they wicked sinners? If we're not allowed to make those our evaluative criteria by which we decide what, whether Jesus is really God in the flesh, whether God's really working in him or not, if we're not allowed to ask those, then what do we ask? How do we evaluate him? And I'm going to give you five. Five proper evaluation questions of Jesus, according to Mark. And you have to submit to Mark being correct about this. And the first is this. The first criteria by which we need to evaluate Jesus is the miracles. That would be hard for us, casting out of demons and all that stuff, because we wonder if these people might have just gotten it wrong. 
Maybe they didn't realize what they were seeing. Maybe they were just part of a pre-critical society, and when they saw something that they couldn't explain, they just said, ah, miracle, and threw up their hands. But there's a miracle that makes all the other miracles more reasonable, and it is the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so the Gospel of Mark would invite us to evaluate everything else in the life of Jesus by that last thing that happens, by his coming back from the dead. So Mark claims, as all the Gospels do, that he died on a cross early one afternoon, that he was buried by that evening, that he was in the grave for the rest of Friday, for all day Saturday, and then for half a day on Sunday. Remember, Sunday begins at sundown on Saturday for the Jewish people. And then early in the morning, partway through that first day of the week, he rose from the dead. And after that, they claim that he appeared to all 12 of his disciples and then to 500 individual people over the course of 40 days, and then to all of them at once, and then they watched him ascend into heaven. That's their story. They claim that everything else we believe about him has to be rooted there, that you must evaluate everything you know about Jesus by that one thing they claim about him. Secondly, we have to evaluate his teachings and the context in which they were spoken. What do these teachings mean? What do they say? Do they make for a better society? Do they free people or do they enslave them? All those kinds of questions. We must evaluate his teachings. So first, the resurrection. Second, the teachings we find in Jesus. The third, what effect did he have on his followers? Mark puts that forward for us. What effect did he have? The parable of the sower is the central parable of this entire book. What effect did Jesus have? According to church tradition, these 12 who he selected as apostles, one of them betrayed him before he even rose from the dead, but all of them lived a poor life without wealth. Most of them traveled around the known world, living off of the charity of others, constantly moving. Some succumbed to illness. Some were killed by adversaries. And they all claim the reason they were willing to do it is because Jesus rose from the dead. What effect did he have on his earliest followers? And is there any power in that effect? Fourth, what effect did Jesus' followers have on the world? The truth of the matter is that no single human being in the history of humanity has a, had a more wide-reaching effect on humanity or the course of our history than Jesus of Nazareth. So what effect have his earliest followers had on the world? This is an evaluative criteria we can ask. And then finally, what effect has his gospel had on you and on me? Now, we haven't always lived according to what we find in the teachings of Jesus, but when we have, what have we found? Have we found freedom? Have we found peace? Have we found wisdom? Or have we found something else? That's always a challenge and a risky one because some might say, I found nothing. And would say, well, that's important for you to consider. It's not to be considered higher than the other four, but certainly one. So these are the five evaluative criteria that Mark gives us. And the people in Nazareth asked none of them. Of course, they didn't know about the resurrection, but they certainly knew about the miracles. And they were firsthand witnesses to it. So they could have asked that better than we can. But they didn't want to evaluate him based on the miracles. They didn't want to evaluate him based on their teachings. Did you see in that passage? They thought that stuff was all great. Miracles were great. Teachings were amazing. But they didn't want to evaluate him based on those things. They didn't want to evaluate him based on the effect he was having on them or anybody else. That's not really because he was clearly very popular. Crowds were following him. Everybody knew his name. But, but they didn't want to base it on that. And because... They wanted to root their criticism of Jesus in his parentage, in his pedigree, in his all that other stuff. His gospel could have no effect on them. He was able to heal some diseases. You see that at the end? 
He's able to heal some diseases. But what's missing from Nazareth is the stuff that mattered everywhere else. There are no casting out of demons, no breaking of spiritual bonds, no restoration of the unclean so they could come into the presence of God. He couldn't restore anybody. All he could do was heal them physically. That's all he could do because they would not accept what God was doing in him. And the same is true of us. We evaluate him by his teachings and the effects those teachings have on those who truly follow him and the effect he has on us when we follow him. And so for some, the best way to evaluate Jesus is to give everything you have to him and watch what happens next.